Each and every one of you can probably remember with exact detail the most important time in your life. Each and every one of you can probably recall the very first time you encountered Christ. The mighty apostle Paul regularly reflected on the time he first encountered Christ. There was one such occasion he was reflecting. He was in a Roman jail cell. He was shackled, as Roman prisoners always were, to, of this caliber at least, to a Roman guard all the time. There was always someone who shared a chain with him. Paul was never alone. He had a friend that came to visit him by the name of Timothy, his great protege in the faith. And as Timothy brought word of the expansion of the gospel, of the good faith of so many brothers around the world, Paul began to think. Paul began to reflect upon the time he first encountered Christ. He remembered, despite right now being in a Roman jail cell, shackled to a Roman guard, in horrible and pitiful circumstances, he remembered that it wasn't always this way. For Paul grew up being known as Saul of Tarsus. He was born in Tarsus, which is in the Roman Empire, and he was born with Roman citizenship, and he remembered the great privileges that were his because of that. He got to attend some of the finest universities, and Tarsus was well known for being the third most advanced academic center in the entire world, only behind Alexandria and Athens. Saul went to the very best schools, but it wasn't just the Roman schooling that impressed upon his life. He was thoroughly Jewish. His dual citizenship was not just with Rome, it was also with Israel, and he was a Hebrew of Hebrews. He was born of the tribe of Benjamin. He was circumcised on the eighth day. In regard to zealousness for Yahweh's name, he was without equal. In regard to righteousness at following Yahweh's laws, he was righteous. He was without fault. He was on the fast track to becoming one of the very youngest members of the Sanhedrin, the Jewish Supreme Court that had ever been. Saul was well on his way. And then Saul started to hear about this upstart itinerant preacher from Nazareth by the name of Yeshua, Jesus. This Jesus of Nazareth started gathering a following, and it did not sit well with Saul from Tarsus, for as a thorough Jew, a Hebrew of Hebrews, he was entirely monotheistic. And when a mere human claims to be divine, oh, the righteousness that one has for Yahweh must snuff out such nonsense. And so Saul went to snuff out this nonsense He'd heard that Jesus had died by crucifixion 40 days earlier. He'd seen after the day of Pentecost that his followers had yet grown grown stronger and stronger. And there was this one young man, this annoying young baby-faced man named Stephen, who kept preaching to the people the truth in his mind that the Bible pointed to this Jesus. So enraged was Saul that he said, that's it. It's time to take matters into my own hands. And so he extended his arms and he took the cloaks of all the thoroughly Hebrew, thoroughly monotheistic, thoroughly zealous for Yahweh's name, Jews. And he held their cloaks as they picked up stones. 
And they threw them repeatedly at Stephen until he lay dead. Saul of Tarsus was legally responsible for the very first Christian ever martyred for being a Christian. And great joy was Saul's because of it. Filled with such pleasure at seeking to stop blasphemy, Saul went to the Jewish Supreme Court, the Sanhedrin, went to the high priest. He gathered letters of authority whereby he could go to any synagogue He could go to any place where followers of the way happened to be and he could arrest man, woman, and child who claimed the name of Jesus as Yahweh saves Yahweh in the flesh. And he breathed out murderous threats. And Saul of Tarsus dropped the hammer on the church in Jerusalem with such ferocity that every brother scattered except the disciples, except the apostles themselves. And because they scattered... Saul went hunting. One day he was on the road to Damascus with an entourage of fellow Jews ready to snuff out this blasphemous Jesus worship when all of a sudden he was knocked to his knees, struck blind by the brightest and most intense light that he had ever yet seen, yet he only saw the light momentarily. For then, something like scales developed over his eyes and he was unable to see. And upon his knees, groping about, crawling, this mighty man of God leveled, beseeching, looking for a hand or assistance, suddenly heard the voice from heaven cry out, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Incredibly frightened, incredibly battered by this turn of events, He groped about, blindly looking to the skies, and cried out, Who are you, Lord? I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Now rise and be told what you shall do. And in fact, as Saul later recorded and recounted this day, this is what the Lord Jesus told him. Rise and stand on your feet. For this purpose, I have appeared to you to appoint you as a servant and witness, not only of the things which you have seen, but which also the things in which will appear to you. I will rescue you from the Jewish people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you to open their eyes that they may turn from darkness to light and from the authority of Satan to Yahweh that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who've been sanctified by faith in me. Now rise and go to Damascus where you will be told what you must do next. And so Saul arose, having encountered the risen Jesus, having been turned from the persecutor to now the advocate for the faith he went Well, as soon as the Lord Jesus was done with Saul, he found another brother. His name was Ananias. And he said, Ananias, arise and go in Damascus to Straight Street. There you will find a man from Tarsus by the name of Saul. He is my chosen instrument. Go and baptize him in my name. And do you know what Ananias did? He pushed back. Lord, 
I have heard about this man and how much harm he did to your saints in Jerusalem. He has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. But Jesus said to him, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. And suffer he did. This Saul had a life of suffering. He was known as Paul after this. And he grew in the faith. He grew in such power that Acts 9.22 describes him as a man who grew so powerful that he baffled the Jews living in Damascus. The same Jews he came to murder and destroy. He now baffled them by proving That Jesus was the Christ. For the same reason he sought their destruction, he now proved the genuineness of that faith. And his life was filled with the purpose of sharing the gospel with the Gentiles and suffering. Paul himself was stoned. Paul was arrested many times. Paul was jailed. Paul was beaten. Paul was flogged. Paul was falsely accused. Paul was run out of town. And now Paul finds himself in a Roman jail cell, once again reflecting upon the turn of his life. And that is what he had in mind when he and his protege in the faith, Timothy, sat down to pen the letter to the church in Colossae. The text which we now read, the very end of Colossians chapter 1, has everything I've just said in his mind as Paul begins to speak and as Timothy begins to write. If you're able, would you stand with me in awe of God's word as I read for you Colossians chapter 1, verses 24 through 29. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and I fill up what is lacking of Christ's afflictions in my flesh on behalf of his body, which is the church, of which I was made a minister according to the stewardship from God given to me for you, so that I might fully carry out the preaching of the word of God, that is the mystery which has been hidden in the past ages and generations, but now has been manifested to his saints." To whom God willed to make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom, so that we may present every man complete in Christ. For this purpose I also labor, striving according to His working, which He works in me in power. The Word of the Lord. You may be seated. This text at first glance might just seem like a nice wrap up to chapter 1. After all, chapter 1 of the book of Colossians is filled with one of the greatest prayers ever recorded in the New Testament, whereby this mighty apostle commends the Colossians to their faith and prays for them that they would be filled with the full knowledge of Yahweh's will with all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so that they may walk in a manner worthy of Him. Oh, what a prayer. This chapter, Colossians 1, is also filled with the single greatest New Testament Christological text in all of the Bible. 
Whereby Jesus, God the Son, the Logos, the second person of the Trinity, is identified as the image of the invisible God. The creator of everything that we see. He is the agent of creation. Everything that has been created, whether visible or invisible, whether throne or ruler or power or dominion or authority, was created by him, through him, and for him. He is the very image of the invisible God. He sustains and puts all things together. He is the head of the church, the firstborn of creation, the firstborn from among the dead, so that in all things he might be first place. Yes, Colossians 1 is filled, but do not overlook these last few verses, for they have the power to encourage They have the power to strengthen your faith, and they have the power to help you rejoice even when everything around you seems to be crumbling. Let's look at what the apostle says in greater detail. Colossians chapter 1, verse 24. Now I rejoice in my sufferings. It is a difficult thing to rejoice in sufferings, and yet the Bible commends us to do so. Jesus himself tells us to rejoice in your suffering. He said, blessed is the man who's persecuted and mocked on account of my name. The apostle Peter, the primary apostle to the Jews, says rejoice in your sufferings. The apostle Paul, the primary apostle to the Gentiles, says rejoice in your sufferings. He can do likewise. And suffer he did. Paul lived a life of suffering. Jesus himself told the man who baptized him how much Paul would have to suffer. Oh, and he suffered. He lists his suffering elsewhere in Scripture. Stoned, beaten, shipwrecked, jailed, isolated, persecuted, attacked. He suffered very, very regularly. And I wonder if you can rejoice in your sufferings today. I hope that you haven't been beaten. I hope that you haven't been flogged. I hope that you haven't been falsely arrested and jailed. I hope that your suffering is circumstantial. I hope that your suffering is that you live in a world whereby you see the watering down of the gospel. I hope that your suffering is that you live in a culture whereby you see the acquiescence of those who claim Christ and yet admit that the sin we are called not to do is that which they want to do. I hope that your suffering is on behalf of the church and its feckless nature oftentimes in this world. For even though there is drama and even though there is crime and even though there is famine and even though there is warfare, we still live in the safest place where I come to church every Sunday and I have very little fear. But there are brothers of ours around the world who suffer life and death consequences daily for their worship of the Lord Jesus. And yet they rejoice. They rejoice. So can we. Paul says, I fill up what is lacking of Christ's afflictions in my flesh. Now, this is a peculiar phrase, one that you've read many, many times um, over the last few weeks as you've looked through Colossians chapter 1 and one that may vex you. How on earth can someone, even as mighty as the Apostle Paul, say, I fill up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions in my flesh? Didn't, Didn't Jesus fill up everything? Yes, he did, but what's happening is something very, very important. The word afflictions is never used to describe Jesus on the cross. It is always used to describe Jesus' earthly ministry. He suffered affliction when he was nearly thrown off a cliff 
in Luke 4. He suffered affliction when the people who followed him left because his teaching was too hard. He suffered affliction when those who rejoiced in the death of his friend Lazarus now plotted to kill both Lazarus and him. He suffered afflictions throughout his ministry. When Herod, that fox, arrested his cousin and beheaded John the Baptist, he was afflicted in these ways. It is never used to describe the atoning work of Christ. So when Paul says, I fill up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions in my flesh, he is very specifically saying, I am taking on in my earthen suffering what must happen for the church. I know this because in the very next phrase, Paul says, for your sake on behalf of his body, which is the church. He's suffering on behalf of the church. It's the body of Christ that carries on even after the atoning work of Christ is through. It's the body of Christ that carries on, of which he is the head that continues to suffer. And Paul, for its sake, suffers. He is beaten. He is jailed. And he takes in his flesh... What was lacking in Christ, not because Jesus didn't pay it all on the cross. Oh, he did. Our atonement was entirely won upon the cross. But as the body of Christ through the church persists, so even now the church suffers. And Paul himself was an agent of suffering on behalf of the body he loved so well. In verse 25, he admits that he was made a minister according to the stewardship from God given to him for you so that he might fully carry out the preaching of the word of God. Paul was a minister, a diakonos, a servant, according to the stewardship of God. He was given a gift from God to culture and cultivate and use and see fit, which is the gift of stewardship. And when you are given something by God to cultivate and make grow, in this case, the gospel, the word of God, it must be preached fully. He might fully carry out the preaching of the word of God. There was nothing in Paul's life more important than preaching the word of God. It is everything. It is the reason he suffered. It is the reason he found himself in in jail. Preaching the full word of God is everything to the apostle. And then he describes what is the full word of God. That is the mystery in verse 26, which has been hidden from the past ages and generations, but has now been manifested to his saints. Don't get tripped up on the word mystery. Mystery is not used in the same way it's used today, whereby Scooby-Doo and the gang, led by Velma these days, will go out and try to figure out how, who done it, take the mystery machine and reveal, oh, something that you can't figure out, it's a tough riddle. No, no. In biblical times, mystery is very simply knowledge that cannot be had without revelation. That's it. When God reveals his nature, when God reveals his name, when God reveals that he is Yahweh who made everything, and it is Jesus, the image of the invisible Yahweh, who's the very specific agent of creation, this is mystery revealed. And there is a mystery which was hidden to generations past. In the Old Testament, the people didn't know, the people didn't understand what was coming, but now it has been manifested. It has been revealed to the saints. And here is the mystery. God willed to make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery. And the mystery has been revealed. It has been made known. And it's not just a mystery. There are riches of this mystery. There's a glory to this mystery. And here is the mystery. That it would be revealed among the Gentiles. Among the Gentiles. 
This mystery is not just for the Jews, it's also for the Gentiles. Now, this is what did not make sense to a first century Jewish audience. They would not have understood this, but God has been hinting at this for a long time. You remember how Yahweh himself told Abraham that he would be the father of many nations, not just one nation. You remember how Yahweh himself said, I'll have a sacrifice for all people, but not your boy. You remember how Yahweh himself revealed his name to Moses and said, you will lead my people from the Gentile prison and shackles of Egypt to a land now occupied by the Gentiles, hinting along the way that it was not just for the people of Israel, but it was for all people. And Jesus himself demonstrated this by talking to the Samaritan woman, by healing the Syrophoenician woman, by raising people from the dead and by sharing the gospel, even with the Samaritans, yes, it is for the Gentiles also. And here's the very specific content of the mystery. Christ in you, the hope of glory. This is the mystery revealed. Christ in you, the hope of glory. The hope of glory is very much the foundation of the faith that we have, which is the impetus for the love that we demonstrate. You remember that from the first part of Colossians 1. Hope is the foundation upon which faith is built and out of which love springs. Yes, it is the hope of glory. And this hope of glory very specifically includes the resurrection. This is what it is to be glorified. Jesus was raised from the dead, and so too we will be raised from the dead. Wait a minute. Who will be raised from the dead? You. The Greek word you is plural. It's not singular. It's not you as in like me, an individual. It's you as in y'all. If he was in Missouri, it would be all y'all. This is, this is the mystery. Christ in all y'all. The hope of glory. That's how they say it down here. It's you, plural. It's not just you individually. Now, it is you individually because you are part of the you collective. And so, yes, you have the hope of glory. Yes, that's true. Yes, Christ is in you. But Christ is in you as in Christ is among you, the body of believers. This is the mystery. This is the mystery. And here is the mystery revealed. The way that Christ is in you is very, very much through the Holy Spirit. It is not literally Christ who dwells in you, although Paul will say things like in Galatians 20, it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. He lives in you because of the Holy Spirit. I know that because of what Paul wrote in Romans chapter 8. Listen to what he says in verses 9 and following. You are not in the flesh, but you're in the Spirit. And if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you, but if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to God. But if Christ is in you, the body is dead because of sin, yet the Spirit is alive because of righteousness. But if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through the Spirit who dwells in you. Christ in you is the Holy Spirit inside of you individually and the Holy Spirit energizing the church collectively. Christ is the head and yet he lives in you because his Spirit, the Spirit of Christ, the Spirit whom He said He would send way back in John 15, 26, is in you. That is Christ in you. Christ is in you because the Spirit of Christ is in you. It is not more clear than in Romans 9 through 12, or Romans 8, verses 9 through 12. He explains the mystery even further. Christ in you, the hope of glory. When Christ is in you through the Holy Spirit, energizing and bringing life and righteousness to you despite living in a body that gets old, that gets sick, that will die, 
The hope of glory is that you will receive a resurrection body which will not die, which will be able to keep up with your immortal soul. This is the hope, and it is not just for the Jews, which is good because I'm not of Jewish heritage. It is for the Gentiles also. So the inheritance which is promised in the, in the tree to all the Jews is also available to all those who by faith get grafted in to the tree, all those who abide in Christ, all those who remain connected to the true vine, we too receive the inheritance. It is not just for that little sliver of land over in the holiest part of the world. It is for all people anywhere in the world. This is the mystery. It is even for you. It is even for y'all. Now, why do we have it? Well, here's why. Because it's him we proclaim. It's Jesus we proclaim. He's the one we proclaim. Always, the Holy Spirit is inside of us to proclaim Christ through us to the world. Holy Spirit comes down to fill us to proclaim Jesus. He's the one who reminds us of everything Jesus said. He's the one who convicts the world of guilt in regard to sin, righteousness, and judgment. He's the one who reminds us of the atoning work on the cross. He's the one who always brings Christ to us because he enables us to keep in step with him as we grow in Christ-likeness. You want the Spirit of Christ to make you more like Christ? It's the Holy Spirit. And he's going to help you proclaim Jesus. Now, what that means is that we will admonish every man. If you knew the power of admonishment, you would quake in your boots hearing that word. Admonishing is not comfortable. Admonishing is something that this church and all churches desperately need, though, because admonishing is more than warning, though it includes more warning. We warn, but we also hold accountable. Admonishment is letting people know, not that I'm going to judge you, but that I know how the judge rules in these sorts of cases. So come on, let's get with it. Admonishment is a warning and an accountability. After all, it starts with the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of the fountain of life. It is not the end. Eventually, fear gives way to love, for perfect love casts out fear, for fear has to do with judgment. Fear has to do with punishment. The reverence and awe that fear instilled within your heart is now carried on through love. But your faith helps you to recognize that you no longer have fear of punishment because Jesus paid the penalty for your sin. The punishment is done. And now all that you have left is a reverent and awe out of love. A reverence and awe out of love. That's what you have. Admonishment is very, very important. And we must admonish every man. And we must teach every man with all wisdom. Wisdom is really, really important. And remember, it's the fear of the Lord that's the beginning of wisdom. But it's not the end of wisdom. The end of wisdom is love, and we have to help people move towards the love, not merely the fear. And why do we do this? So that we may present every man complete in Christ. Now you might think, what does complete in Christ mean? Well, actually, the Greek word for complete is the same word that Jesus uses in Matthew 5, 48, for be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. It's the same word. So many people worry about, oh no, Jesus tells me I have to be perfect. But I'm not. So am I really in? Yes! Yes, you're really in. Perfect is not understood as in sinlessness. Perfect is understood best in terms of completeness. 
You are complete because Christ is in you through the Holy Spirit. You completely commune with God. Despite your sinfulness, despite my sinfulness, I can still be a man complete in maturity in Christ. Not because I never sin. In fact, the movements would say, oh, if you accept Christ by faith and you will never sin again, have not read 1 John, which says, if you claim to be without sin, you are a liar and you make God into a liar. All men sin, and yet it's not sin that's the problem. Sin is not the problem for the Christian. Sin is not the problem for the Christian. The problem for the Christian is lacking completeness. We don't make him first in everything. He's not the center of who we are. And so we check him off on a list, and then we go on to our other thing. Sin isn't the problem. Lacking completeness is the problem. Now, who can grow in completeness? Who can grow in maturity? Well, what's interesting is that in this one sentence, in this one verse, the phrase, every man, is used three times. Every man may come to Christ. Now, this is understood in first century Jewish idiom as every child who has faith can come to Christ. Every woman who has faith can come to Christ. Every man has faith can come to Christ. Everyone can come to Christ. Who should we share the gospel with? Everyone. Who should we explain repentance to? Everyone. Who should we start off with the fear of the Lord, follow up with the love of the Lord? Everyone. Who should we admonish? Everyone. Who should we teach with all wisdom? Everyone. Why? Because anyone can become complete, even you. He came even for you. For this purpose, I also labor, striving according to his working, which works in me in power. You see, I have to work really hard for this as a preacher. It's very hard to come up with a sermon every seven days. Paul had to work very, very hard. I've never had to write one from jail like he wrote lots of his. And yet, it's not us who's doing anything. It's the Lord who does it all. You see, it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me through the Holy Spirit. And so he gets all the credit, he does all the work, he gets everything done. Yes, I labor also, I strive also, but it's because of him working in me. It's him who works in me in power. It's not me. Left to my own power, I don't preach any sermons. Left to my own power, I don't do ministry at all. But because of his power... I can preach. Because of his power, I can do ministry. Because of his power, even though I sin, I can be complete in him. It's his working which works in us. It's his working. Don't overlook the last little bit of Colossians 1. It's too good. It's too powerful. In fact, it's so powerful, here's what I want you to do with it. Would you please read Colossians 1, the whole chapter, three times this week. The whole thing, focusing in on this last little bit. And then when you read the entire book once, repetition is the key here. You read it over and over and over again, and you start talking like it more and more and more, and you start walking like it more and more and more. And then what I'd love for you to do is memorize Colossians 1, 27 and 28. God willed to make known the mystery. God willed to make known the mystery of the riches, of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles also. The hope of glory. Christ, Christ in you, the hope of glory. And then the second part, him we proclaim, admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom so that we may present every man complete in Christ. You can memorize it. It's powerful. It's good. I encourage you to do so. 
And then this week, I want you to commune with Christ through the Spirit, through prayer, and through the Word. That's what you do when you pray with God and and when you focus in on the Spirit and when you look at the Word, you're communing with God. That's what we've been doing this whole time and that's what we do when we celebrate something called communion. Now, on the night that he was betrayed, the Lord gathered his disciples. Saul was not yet one. And he gathered them around and he took a piece of bread and he broke it and he handed it to them and he said, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, he took a cup and he passed it and he said, this is the blood of the new covenant poured out for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Now, even though Saul was not there that night, the Lord instituted the Lord's Supper. Saul has a lot to say about the Lord's Supper because Jesus explained it to him. And I want each and every one of us to think very carefully about the body of Christ Knowing that Jesus said, if you don't eat my flesh and drink my blood, you don't have part in me. That's a tough saying. But we're about to take the body of Christ. We're about to take the blood of Christ. Because he came so that it could be given and shed. Even for you. So that you could go share it with even him. Reflect on these things for just a moment and then we'll take them together.